Lord, we give you thanks as the one who, who provides, who meets our needs, but also the one that we trust to continue to do so in the future. So we give our tithes and our offerings to you with grateful hearts, but also in faith that you will continue to meet all of our needs. Lord, may we not look to ourselves, may we not look to others, may we look to you alone. Deepen our faith in you. Would you take and bless these, our gifts to you today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 and beginning in verse 1. This is God's word, Jeremiah 2 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and I will, with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you. And your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you now open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear and to understand all that is ours that you have given us in your word. 
Instruct our hearts, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of us have probably seen a a movie or a TV show or read a John Grisham novel in which an indictment is handed down. That formal issuing of a charge that presents what the crime is that has been committed. Well, after chapter 1, the the call of Jeremiah that we've looked at previously, in chapter 2 we see the indictment. It is not Jeremiah's indictment. It is God's indictment. Jeremiah is simply the mouthpiece. Now, because of the length of it, we're breaking it up, and I've called this one part one, and guess what next week's going to be called? Part two, that's right. Um, It's not necessarily broken up in that way. I'm doing that just for the sake of time. But there are parts that we see in it. There is some organization that we see to it, and it's not specifically spelled out, so I'm not speaking to this as something that's emphatic. But much like when we looked at the call of Jeremiah, we recognized just in the structure of the language that it was likely that Jeremiah experienced the call over different uh, times or different occasions. And there's some organization that's put here. And the same is probably true, a harmonization of uh, indictments or indicting statements that were given. And in fact, we'll see these throughout the book of Jeremiah. It's not unique just to chapter 2, but there is some clear organization. And that gives the opportunity to mention some things, still by way of introduction, because In my introduction, I couldn't mention everything. There was a lot that I had to cut out, and you probably remember the sermon was still really long. Um, So I'll mention some other things as we continue through our early weeks in the study to help us understand kind of the whole story so we know what's coming. One of the things that's important to to this account of Jeremiah is that the scroll upon which this message was written was destroyed by Jehoiakim. Uh, You'll remember his name in the opening words of Jeremiah. He was introduced as one of the kings, the son of Josiah, under which, uh, during which Jeremiah's ministry occurred. And so in chapter 36, we will see that account of where that scroll was destroyed. After it was destroyed, Jeremiah went right back to the task of recording the prophecy that had been revealed to him by God through Baruch's pen. We haven't been introduced to Baruch yet, but I've mentioned him. He is Jeremiah's scribe. He's the one who did the writing. And so they went back to the work of recording the the book that we have today, the, the form that it's in today. And so it brought up opportunities for that organization to occur. Again, it doesn't change the meaning of it in any way, and it's, it's not specifically mentioned, but it does help us appreciate some things, including how God revealed himself in the form of prophecy. Scripture is God's word given to men, and as it is recorded by such, it retains their writing style, their personality, and the literary means that they used. And we see this variation throughout the books of the Bible. John Thompson clarifies it this way, the the prophetic oracle was conveyed through the personality of the sanctified speaker. The weight and authority of the message was not invalidated or minimized by this fact. It was the way divine revelation came to men. So God used men to record his word, and we see their personality and other aspects of it. Second Peter one twenty one says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in the same way, Jeremiah, Jeremiah was likely uh, experienced several of these uh, indictments over time and organized them here into what we read as chapter 2. And my point in saying that, again, is that the indictment was clear. 
Now, here in chapter 2, it's specifically mentioned as go and proclaim this to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah certainly did that. But Jeremiah's ministry lasted over 40 years. And so he proclaimed the indicting statements again and again. And my point in saying all of this is that the people were without excuse. They couldn't claim ignorance. They couldn't claim that they hadn't heard the message. They understood what God was saying. And many, not all, many chose to ignore the message. They chose to go after false prophets. Uh, they were the, the, the false prophets, as we'll see, were, were ones who were offering positive messages, good words that made people warm and fuzzy. We might think of New Testament language tickling their ears. And the people preferred this as opposed to God's disciplinary call to return to him. And so Jeremiah's indicting statement carried on throughout his message. This ties in another important theme that we don't see specifically mentioned by name here in the indictment in chapter 2, but it is clearly here, and that is the notion of covenant. McKay suggests that even though the word is not mentioned here, he calls all of chapter 2 applied covenant theology. And I think this is really helpful. The fact that Israel had been chosen, redeemed, and delivered to the promised land was all rooted in the covenant God had made with Abraham and then expressed more clearly on Sinai after the people were rescued from Egypt. It was there that God said to them, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the message, the covenant message given to Israel. While the covenant is secured by God alone, his people are still commanded to obey him. And when they don't obey him, they break the covenant and there is disciplinary action to correct them. This is true for us today as well. A lot of times we think of God as punitive, judgmental in the point of uh, coming after us just to punish us. God does not punish us as his children. All of his wrath fell on Jesus. God disciplines us, and there's a distinction there. Discipline is designed to lead to correction, to repentance, and God corrects his children. Proverbs 3 says this. It's it's repeated in Hebrews. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. This is one of the clear themes of the book of Jeremiah. And so beginning in the opening words of chapter 2, in verse 2 we see another uh, anthropomorphic description given to God. We saw the hand of God on Jeremiah in that anointing act, uh, uh, human language given to describe God. Here uh, the language is, I remember. God uses this himself. He often condescends through language to help us as finite creatures better understand. But we all know that God does not forget as if he needs to remember. God is choosing to remember in the way we might use the term reminisce. God is reminiscing. He's remembering the old days. He recalls his people during the early days, the devotion they expressed to him after he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptian. And this is something that we can relate to. Often when we're desperate, we cry out to God things like, Lord, if you will just solve this problem, I'll do anything. We might even think of the story of Martin Luther where he had a similar experience in a thunderstorm and he promised to be a monk if he was delivered. 
And so we, we have these experiences where we're, we're desperate and then God does it and then we're filled with gratefulness. Unfortunately, it's often just temporary, but we're filled with gratefulness. And Israel needed God to rescue them. They couldn't deliver themselves. They needed him to carry them through the wilderness. But many of you are looking at me skeptically because you know the whole story. And you're thinking to yourselves, wait a second, it wasn't all roses and romance. What is God talking about here? I mean, there was a little bit of stumbling going on in the early days. There was a little bit of grumbling going on in the early days. In fact, uh, we might think of incidents like the golden calf. But through the metaphor of marriage, and similar to our own experience in marriage, we often reminisce in a way that filters out some of the bad stuff. When we look back through the memory albums, our pictures recall typically the good memories. We know that the good old days were never truly the good old days, but we prefer to recall the better moments. Then in verse 3, God calls them his first fruits, stating that they were set apart unto him called out from among the nations. The first fruits were given to God by his people. They were called to give the first of the harvest, the first fruits, in the same way that we give. It displays gratefulness to God for his provision, but it also displays trust that I'm looking to you, Lord, to continue to provide for me in the future. But it's the first fruit. So there's implied here that there's going to be what? More fruit to come. There would be more harvest, a future harvest, and you and I are that latter harvest. The fulfillment of the promises that God said, in them all the nations of the earth would be blessed, beginning with Abraham and and continually reiterated to his people that through uh, his people the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so now we are a part of that rescue plan that reaches around the globe and calls for for God's own possession people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. At the end of verse 3, there's the line about those who ate of it incurred guilt. That may not be as clear uh, what that is. This speaks to those who came after Israel, who opposed Israel as they came into their promised land. And God promised judgment on those who did that. And we can go back in the Old Testament and see those accounts of the judgment that fell on those who attacked Israel as they made their way in. In the next section, verses 4 to 8, we see how the people have forgotten their God the rescuer and lover of their souls. They've dismissed. They've become enamored with other things. They've become interested in other things. And the indictment itself takes us back to previous generations. There's nothing new that's happening now in the time, in Judah in the time of Jeremiah's day. Look in verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? It wasn't God who had strayed. It wasn't God who let down uh, the, the holding the covenant. It was the people who went far from me. This word that, that, that they go after, worthlessness, it's the same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes where we translate it typically vanity, where he says all is vanity. It is a vapor. It's like trying to hold water in your hands. You can't hold on to it. And the worthlessness that God speaks of here is their idolatry. Now, the Hebrew includes the definite article, and so it literally reads, they went after the worthlessness and became worthless. God objectifies it here. And God is demonstrating by doing this that the idols that we go after will not deliver us. They will not produce what we think they will or what they hope they will or what we trust them to. 
And God, I'm, we're going to sneak ahead for, for just, just a brief minute. He, he, he goes after the idols in a, in a very, uh, in a mocking way in Jeremiah 10. This is what he says. The customs of the peoples are vanity. There's that concept again, worthlessness. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Your idols, my idols, the things that we love, the things that we trust and put our confidence in, will not and cannot deliver. Financial security, maybe a job, could be a person, could be a relationship. Your house or something that you believe gives you status. Your family, your children, who gets elected, shifts in power. Even our good works, we can turn even the best of things into idols. We can idolize things that are even considered good when we begin to put our trust in them, our confidence in them, over trusting and loving God. And the result is, when we do this, when we begin to put our confidence in these things instead of in God, we can expect worthless results. Vanity, nothing, vapor. These things simply won't deliver us. They will not provide for us, and they certainly will not love us in return. God alone is our Savior, our strength, and our provider. And He is not only the one who has loved us perfectly, but he loves us with an everlasting love. And here again is this picture of covenant. It will never end. This has always been true of the people of God. And Yahweh explains to Judah how he saved and delivered them out of Egypt, that, that, he, that they had stopped seeking him, but he does not seek, stop, stop seeking them. The same is true for us today. It says in verse 7, He brought them through pits in the desert, through deep darkness to a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things. But they turned the land into an abomination by seeking out other sources of hope, by worshiping idols, by trusting in other powers to deliver them like Egypt and Assyria. It says even the priests, the leaders, the shepherds, those who were over the law, all of them were off course in their roles. None of them were seeking the Lord, verse 8. They went after false gods and other things that do not profit. They went after worthless things. But the Lord wants them to understand that it isn't about performance or doing good works but about the fact that they have not loved him with all their heart, mind, and strength. It is covenant. It is relationship. As he said to Moses, even before Moses ever confronted Pharaoh, before he ever rescued them from the land of Egypt, he said to Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He promises to deliver even before he does it. And God continued keeping that covenant which is why he now says through Jeremiah to the nation of Judah in verse 9, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. God will not give up. His warning to judge is disciplinary. It's designed to bring about change. This was true then, it is true now. When we choose not to obey God, he will chastise us. He will, he will discipline us. But again, I want to say it's not judgmental in a I'm going to get you now kind of way. That's what we do. So we often attribute that to God. We think he's like that. He contends with us. He comes after us. He chases us. And yes, he disciplines us. And who loves discipline? No one. 
It's unpleasant for a season, yes, but its purpose, its design is that we might turn and repent because he loves us with an everlasting love. In verse 10, he challenges them to look to the west, to Cyprus, to look to the east, to Kedar, see if anyone else has changed their gods. And of course, no one has. Some add, we see that throughout history, uh, there's no need to change because, as he says in verse 11, these gods are no gods. So they can add to them, they can change the names of them, but there's no need to change them. And yet, this is what the people have done. Look at the end of verse 11. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Again, there's that picture of worthlessness. So great was their salvation, yet they disparaged it. Every time you and I sin, we do the same thing. They forgot who they were. They forgot their true identity as Yahweh's redeemed people. They lived like abandoned orphans instead of the royal children that they were. They'd forgotten his words in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yahweh then calls on the heavens. He, he, he kind of turns the heavens into a, a witness that he calls to the stand. And he says, be appalled, be shocked as you see what has happened. Vivid imagery becomes even more vivid as he then moves on to this image probably the most well-known verse in this section, that the fountain of living water has chosen to give himself to them and they have refused him. The Lord is the fountain of living water. He is the source of pure, clear, all-satisfying water. We can't really capture this because we've all grown up in a time that we take clean water for granted. We don't even think about it. We go to the faucet, we go to the water fountain, we go wherever. And if you've traveled even to places that have water. We still have means to purify and, and filter and do all of these things. But the people of Jeremiah's time, this would have meant something that we would really struggle to comprehend. They were accustomed to a lack of water, especially good, clean, pure water. They were a people who lived in a land that was often dry and weary. And so they dug out these cisterns and they would collect rainwater in times of plenty so they would have it in times when they lacked. But the water in these cisterns became stagnant very quickly. It, it began to grow algae very quickly. And can you imagine this being your only source of water? Even worse, the cisterns were prone to cracks. So you did all this work, you planned, you collected, and then the earth shifted and all the water leaked out. So you come out one morning and there's not only bad, there's no bad water, there's no water at all. This was the image that God had for the people in understanding that they had abandoned him. They had willfully given up choice, pure water to accept gray, stagnant water in its place or no water at all. I couldn't help but think of, and I know I've quoted it before, but it's often quoted, but I can't help but think of the C.S. Lewis quote where he describes our idolatry in such similar ways. He says, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when the infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. That's the picture. In the final section of, the, of, of this part of the indictment, God issues the warning of the coming judgment. This is verses 14 to 19. And he has them recall and reconsider their true identity, that they are a people redeemed from slavery. They are no longer to live as such. Why would they then enslave themselves? By running after these worthless things like idols. Or why would they enslave themselves to other countries in the hopes that they would deliver them like Assyria or Egypt? Instead, they ought to have trusted the one who led them in the way, he says, who demonstrated his saving power, who carried them on eagles' wings and saved them. But since they have pursued vapor, emptiness, and the things with no power, verse 19, your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. What they have chosen in forsaking God will become part of their very judgment and discipline. And it works the same way for us today. This is not mean-spirited. Again, this is not a gotcha by God. This shows us that what He has commanded us to avoid was actually for our good all along. We often think that God wants to withhold from us good things. But He has actually warned and cautioned us against things that will destroy us, things that will harm us. He hasn't called us to love Him because He's lonely or needs our affection or worship, but because He is altogether worthy and glorious. There is nothing better for us. There is nothing more for our good than to worship and to obey Him. And when we refuse Him or deny Him or forget Him, then what He has protected us from in His law becomes our judgment. And when His people forget the Lord... They function as unbelievers, and we know that even unbelievers are without excuse, according to Romans 1, where it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. That is what we do when we function like unbelievers, when we fail to trust and obey God, when we forget, when we kind of go on cruise control and we neglect the one who has saved us and put it for, to put our trust in him. What was true for Judah in Jeremiah's day is true for us today. We bring heartache upon ourselves when we forget the one who has called us, who has justified us, and who promises to glorify us. We live to enjoy making mud pies in the slum instead of enjoying a holiday at the sea. We suffer parched when we could drink from the fountain of living water. Instead, we ought to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and in Him find our greatest delight. For you who have yet to believe, maybe you've never understood your need to be saved. Maybe you've never realized the good news that Jesus died so that you wouldn't face judgment for your sins. It could be that the call of the gospel has never resonated with you. Today is the day then to listen and to hear with new ears the voice of the one who says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Come to me all who labor and are burdened and I will give you rest. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. 
Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. For you who are believers, this is a time to see the table spread before us, where Jesus bids us to come and to dine with him, to feed us of himself, his body broken, his blood spilt out. The fountain of living water gives us this means of grace, ordinary wine and bread by which he nourishes us and feeds our souls. He hasn't left us. He's present with us by his spirit, and he comes close to us in a unique way around this table so that this is a time for us to remember what Christ has accomplished, to proclaim the glory of the gospel, a time that we're fed spiritually, It is a time of covenant renewal, a time for us to remember the one who has redeemed us. We remember the covenant that he made. We remember the covenant that he alone secured. And we remember the covenant that he has promised to keep. And we profess our faith in him by eating and drinking. So just as Jeremiah warned Judah, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, the opposite is true for us today. When we come to the Lord's Supper, know and see that it is good and sweet for you to seek the Lord your God, whose covenant promises endure forever. So this table offers a time of reflection. It's a time of repentance, but it's also a time of renewal. So may we not take it lightly or treat it as trivial. Instead, let us rejoice in this great salvation that is ours in Christ, proclaiming his great mercy shown to us at the cross and glorying in his love that preserves and keeps us. So as we come to the table, may we cling to the hope that is ours. As Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you keep your promises. That it's not tied to our performance. Lord, we, we, we would have broken it long ago. The covenant would have been shattered It would have been unrepairable if you had not held it. Thank you for keeping the covenant, for holding us fastly, for saying promises to us that like no one can pluck us from your hand. Lord, not only would we break it, we would run. We would would run far from you if you did not reach out and pursue us and draw us back. Thank you for your all-redeeming work in our lives. So Lord, I pray for those today who feel like they are running, who felt like they have blown it, who felt like they have uh, gone too far, done too much, the, the people who feel like they're beyond redemption. Lord, would you show them the beauty of your all-satisfying work accomplished by Christ on the cross. Lord, for unbelievers, draw them to salvation. For believers, take them back and remind them of that great salvation, that they would know and be secure in the fact that you hold them and that you keep all of your promises. Lord, carry us through, that we would not drift like the people of Judah did, that we would not forget you, that we would not neglect you, that we would not go after worthless things and become worthless ourselves. But Lord, keep us, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to continually trust you, to walk with you, to not forget you, but to seek you, and say, where is the Lord? Lord, satisfy our desires. We thank you for the table. We thank you for this time of worship. Use this even today to do that very thing that we ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.